We've all done things that we wish we hadn't. But Pastor Ed Taylor reminds us where we need to keep our focus. How careful we need to be as we look backwards over the mistakes of our lives. Condemnation always happens when you begin to look backwards. It's very, very hard to find yourself in a state of condemnation when you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. But it's very easy to look and find yourself in a state of condemnation when you look back to a specific date, to a specific failure, and you dwell there. How vital it is is for us to accept the forgiveness of Jesus and move forward with the call of God upon our lives. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life. That I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for. Is your life a wreck and perhaps you feel as though there is no hope? The good news we bring before you today on Abounding Grace is there is a way out. You can be rescued, live and experience hope. That comes to our attention in 2 Samuel 14. It's not hard to see that David's family is a mess. But Pastor Ed Taylor doesn't want to camp out there. He'll focus on the hope to be found in verse 14. God has devised a way to save you. Here he is with more. Chapter 14, that's where we left off last time. Conflict in David's home. His son Absalom is plotting and planning while in exile to steal the kingdom from his dad. Because David's family is in disarray. It is upside down. While David recovered from his sin, he's living with what we have learned as, and I quote, the consequences of forgiven sin. That's why you want to stay away from sin altogether, because there's consequences either way. There's consequences when you find yourself living a life of sin and rebellion toward God and having to live with the daily consequences of that rebellion. And there's consequences when even after the Lord busts you and you come clean and you repent. And that's where David is. And I think a few things that he's dealing with by way of review is that, first of all, that sense of personal condemnation. While he was broken by the reality of his sin and and Nathan came to him with that story and it revealed in his heart the reality of the situation and he cries out, he writes Psalm 51, you recall, and I, I have sinned against God, I've sinned against man. He's dealing with the personal condemnation of that sin. Secondly, I think he lost his spiritual edge. He lost his spiritual edge in prayer and in worship and that uniqueness of having a testimony with his own children that he might be able to lead them with godliness and with conviction. He lost his personal edge, which leads to the third one, and that is he lost the lack of, now he lacks that spiritual authority in his own family because of his sin. And we see that played out in this section of 2 Samuel. And as a result of all these situations, what is the condition of his life? Well, he sees his daughter raped. 
by one of his hat, one of his sons. He sees his son murdered. Another son is plotting to overthrow the kingdom, which is no small thing. Overthrow the kingdom in rebellion against God because God established his kingdom and overthrow the kingdom in relationship to his dad. He's now at odds with his dad. And we, leave, we left David in our last study in a state of mourning because he lost not one son, but two. He lost the son that died and murdered, and he also lost the murderous son. The murderer, I should say. You'll recall in the parable of the Good Samaritan, or excuse me, the parable of the prodigal son, there were how many sons? Two, not one. And the consequences were felt by both of those boys And now David, living out the consequences of the issues in his own family, of his own compromise. Really, what needs to happen is David needs to take the authority of his home and make things right. He needs to bring his son to justice, to bring about a a fair trial that would bring conviction if needed and necessary. Now, of course, we know the full story. David hears the story, but giving the opportunity to be innocent and to proven guilty, he needs to stand up for what's right in his son, to, in his family, to, to, to bring his son to justice, to vindicate the rape of his daughter or of the murder, and, and yet he doesn't. Instead, he chooses not to deal with it at all just to let it go. And part of the issue that I think we pull from 2 Samuel 14 is an issue that I'm certain touches many people listening to me right now. And that's this whole issue of family issues. One of the ways that I describe it, because I hear a lot of stories, I I hear a lot of true stories. Of course, I have my own true stories in my family. And... I like to, as I'm praying for someone and try to stop them from giving me the whole story because I don't need to hear it, I just say, you know, everyone has a family. And it's true. Family issues have touched pretty much everyone without a show of hands. It would just simply take a couple questions to get everybody's hand up in the air. Just a few questions that would cover everyone listening in. And family issues, it's true, can be some of the most difficult to resolve. Some of you right now are seeing an unwillingness on the other side to sit down at the table and talk things out or to admit sinful mistakes. Some of you are on the other side and you're filled with pride and you're unwilling to obey the Lord. With David, on top of that, David's unwilling to hold his son accountable to deal with the issue at hand for the capital crime of murder. Perhaps not wanting to lose yet another son, but compromise always causes great grief and pain. And this compromise will cause David even worse pain than he's feeling in the moment. It will be even far worse for him by not dealing with things the right way. And I would just say, it's important, church, as believers in Jesus Christ, for you and I to be led by the Lord and to deal with things the right way. Because if you don't, things will get worse. You want to be able, especially in these family issues, you want to be able to have as clean hands as you possibly can. You want to have your hands clean before the Lord. Other people may not think your hands are clean. All the accusations may come. But you need to be able to put your head down at the pillow at night to know your hands are clean before the Lord. 
You don't want to enter in with any kind of compromise or not dealing with things where the way you know you need to deal with things. And for three years, Absalom finds himself in exile. David is over the grief of his son Amnon, and he longs now to see Absalom. And yet there's that thing of pride and how pride can so quickly keep, so often keep people apart. And so many times that's the issue in families. So with that in mind now, pick up. That's the background of where we are. In verse 1 of chapter 14, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but like, act like a woman who has been mourning for a long time for the dead. Go to the king, verse 3, and speak to him in this manner. And so Joab put the words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. And the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant has two sons, and two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. And so they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. It seems that one of the things that we've learned about David is that stories get him. God uses stories in his life to get his attention and cause him to understand the reality of his life. Unfortunately, this is a manipulative story, very different from Nathan. You want people in your life like Nathan. You don't want people in your life like Joab. And it's sad to have those in our lives that would see opportunity to take advantage of us, which is what Joab is doing. It's so sad to be surrounded by people that are willing to do whatever they want to get their own way. That's where Joab is. He is not seeing this for the best of David, whereas Nathan was. Very different. They seem very similar, but they're not. He's not Nathan. Nathan was a spiritual brother. Joab is a manipulative, fleshly man. And he literally put all these lying words into this woman to bring about what he wants to happen in the kingdom. But David, nonetheless, he is open to stories. Some of you, you learn better with, through stories. You know, the parables really speak to you, that Jesus chose to use parables because parables are stories that are cast alongside the truth and allow us to really grasp the truth. And when you remember the story, you remember the truth. And some people are like that. They're, you just really relate well to stories. So here is this story. And I'm reminded that God will do whatever it takes to get a point across to us, to help us see the truth. Now, he won't do what we see what Joab is doing here, uh, manipulation and lying and deceitfulness, but God will even use that in a person's life to get the attention of his saint. Have you ever been rebuked by an unbeliever before? It's a very embarrassing thing. 
And, and what, 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 do you, what do you mean by that? Ed? I don't think I've ever been rebuked. Well, have you ever done something or said something where somebody at work or a neighbor comes up and they tell you, well, that's what a Christian does. And you just hang your head and say, well, that's what a knucklehead Christian just did, yes. But generally, that's not my heart. It was a bad moment. And and you take that opportunity to really disciple someone and help them grasp the reality of your lack of perfection and the lack of perfection in any believer. We're growing in grace. See, Joab wasn't concerned about David here. Mark that. He was concerned about himself and the future of the kingdom. Absalom is heir to the throne, but he's not allowed back. So this woman comes with a story about warring brothers, and one is killed and not the other. It's very similar to the true story in the Old Testament of Cain and Abel. And the family demanded that the brother die, leaving no heir. In verse 8, he says, Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, I'll give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. And she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your own son shall fall to the ground. David's answer as the king was to protect the woman. But that wasn't enough. She also has a message for him. Notice, then the woman said in verse 12, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, say on. And the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? Now who's speaking here, the woman or Joab? It's Joab. These are words that Joab was unwilling to come and look David in the eye and just tell him. Instead, he created this whole thing so that he could stay outside of the situation. But notice what's in the heart of Joab. We know what's in the heart of Joab by the words that he gave to the woman. What did the Bible say? He gave her the words. He put the words in her mouth. And what words did he say? David, you schemed. David's not scheming here. He's not the one in the realm of of trying to manipulate the situation. He may not be the best dad. He may have some weaknesses in his parenting and and even in his leadership, but he's not scheming. He says, the king speaks this thing. This is verse 13. For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that the banished ones are not expelled from him. Now therefore I have come to speak of this thing to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will speak now to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord, the king, will now be comforting, for as the angel of God, so is my lord, the king, in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. Let me just say that Joab is a very crafty man. Did you pick up what what he gave her as a tool to get into the heart of David? If you didn't see it, just look back and look at verse 16 and verse 17. As you look at what she's saying here, 
the king will hear and deliver his maidservant. And then verse 17, the word of the Lord, my king, will now be comforting as an angel of God. We have a word for that. You know what it's called? Flattery. And when somebody comes to you and begins to flatter you and puff you up, you are being set up. Because when you use, when someone uses flattery with you as a tool, it usually does not going to lead to anything good. Flattery is, is, a, is a tool that's used to manipulate people. Oh, you're the best thing since the last best thing. And you're, sure, your voice is like an angel of God. If you're not careful, you know, well, nobody's really told me I'm an angel of God lately. Tell me more. Tell me more. And she's, these, these aren't sincere words. Joab made her afraid and sent her with all these words. Flattery, lying, accusations, preying on the reality of the weakness of David, that he's dealing with condemnation. He's dealing with regret. He's dealing with a sense of failure and what I wish I wouldn't have. And look what's happened. I mean, he's got all this going on. And as he revealed himself to Joab, as you often will reveal yourself to those that are closest to you, you just don't want to have a Joab around that's going to take advantage of your weakness for his own personal gain. And that's where David is. Be careful of flattery. Be careful of condemnation. The Bible says it in Jesus. There's therefore Romans chapter 8 verse 1. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those that are called according. For those that love him called according to his purpose. How careful we need to be as we look backwards over the mistakes of our lives. Condemnation always happens when you begin to look backwards. It's very, very hard to find yourself in a state of condemnation when you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. But it's very easy to look and find yourself in a state of condemnation when you look back to a specific date, to a specific failure, and you dwell there. How vital it is is for us to accept the forgiveness of Jesus and move forward with the call of God upon our lives. And so what is Joab doing? He's taking full advantage of the situation to set himself up for the future. If this family, there is some, and, and the, the thing about this is there is some truth to what's being said. And that's what deception does. Deception takes a small kernel of the truth and wraps it in a lie. And then it makes it hard to determine which part is true and which part isn't. It is true that if this family situation doesn't get resolved, the kingdom will suffer. It's true. If Absalom and this whole situation isn't happening and isn't resolved to the, to in, in the, the, really in the sense of God's desire, it's definitely going to happen. And yet Absalom isn't willing Absalom is not an innocent party here. He's not willing to humble himself. It's not just David that is dealing. We're also dealing with Absalom. But before we get to that, we'll see that in a moment. And the rest of the chapters as we go through of, you always associate Absalom with drawing people after himself. And we'll see that in future studies. Absalom took full advantage of this situation to undermine his own dad, undermine the kingdom, but ultimately to undermine the will of God, or at least to attempt to, 
to bring great disarray into. And, and just in case you haven't read ahead, I'll, I'll let you know ahead of time, Absalom loses his life as a result of this. He doesn't make it through, but David does. And you'll see that God associates the failure and sin of Absalom. He very much identifies it. However, before we get into that, let's look at a highlight in this chapter because there's a really cool verse in verse 14 that I want to use to reveal to you the character and nature of our good and, good and wonderful God. And, and it says in verse 14 at the end, Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. That is a beautiful verse. This is the way God works. It is not God's heart for you to die in your sins and live separated from him the rest of eternity. That's not the heart of God. But instead, God has devised a means by which you might live, that you might be rescued. This is so wonderful and so glorious to see the heart of God toward us. Jot it down in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It says that God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so very much that even while we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. When, we, when he raised Christ from the dead, it's only by God's special favor that you've been saved. And I'm encouraged and I love that when I think the means that God has devised so that we were banished through sin, that we're not expelled from him. God made a way. When there seemingly was no way, God made a way. He made a way in relationship to our sins and our separation from him. And, and by that, he will continue. Where there is no way, God can make a way. Have you come to church tonight? Have you come to worship? Have you turned on the radio or the television and you're just, you're just hopeless and you're just looking at your situation with your eyes and you, you just, you're trying to figure out and you just have come to the conclusion it is impossible. There is no way. Listen, when there is no way, God can make a way. God can make a way when there's no way. When you've come to the end of yourself, it's at that point when we come to the end of ourselves that we then throw ourselves upon the mercy of God, which is a very wise thing to do. There's no need to come to the end of yourself to throw yourself upon the mercy of God. You can throw yourself upon the mercy of God right now. No longer having to go that direction. You, you throw yourself upon the mercy of God today. Let him rescue your life. Let him enter in and begin to show you the way that he devised. He has devised a way to rescue you. You know, because of sin, Adam was banished from the garden, from the pristine garden to suffer the consequences of his rebellious decisions. He devised the sacrificial system so that sins could be covered until the promised Savior would come. He would put them away. He would cover them, not remove them, but cover them through the blood that was sacrificed through the animals offered to God until Jesus would come whereby he would remove our sins from us. Remember what John the Baptist said as we study through the Gospel of John? He said that there's the Lamb of God that what? Takes away the sins of the world. God has devised a way when there was no way. He gave hope in a hopeless situation. Yes, God has devised a way to save you. And aren't you thankful for that?
You're listening to Abounding Grace and a message from Pastor Ed Taylor in 2 Samuel. And you can request a CD copy for $2 when you give us a call at 877-30-GRACE. Or look for this message on our website at calvaryaurora.org. There you'll find a wide variety of resources designed to help strengthen your relationship with Christ and grow in God's abounding grace. Again, we're at calvaryaurora.org. Another way to listen to Ed's teachings is by downloading the Calvary Aurora app. Do a search for Calvary Aurora. When you do, you'll also notice the Grace FM Colorado app. That would be a good one to add to your mobile device, too. Again, that's the Calvary Aurora and the Grace FM Colorado apps, a great way to fill up on the teaching of God's Word throughout the week and stay connected with us. At Abounding Grace, we're committed to bringing Bible teaching to your station every day, and we rely on the support of our listeners to do that. And today, when you give a donation of $25 or more, we'll send you the book Radical Prayer by Manny Mill. So call 877-30-GRACE so we can get that right out to you. Let me also give you our mailing address, Abounding Grace, Post Office Box 460598, Aurora, Colorado, 80046. Next time on Abounding Grace, we'll continue Pastor Ed Taylor's study of 2 Samuel. Thank you for listening today, and we'll look for you tomorrow as we open the Word together in search of God's abounding grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You laid down your life. That I would be set Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Aurora.